Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Scott Modell. And I'm Stacey Whitney. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the importance of building and establishing rapport during a forensic interview. We know that uh, all forensic interviewing protocols have some sort of component of rapport building, and uh, ours included. So the FIND model of forensic interviewing, which stands for Forensic Interviewing of Individuals with Disabilities, is, uh, of course, rapport is the first thing that we do, and we find it very important. And so we're going to talk a little bit today why we think it's so important. Yeah, we, we, we often go back and forth and say, you know, things like, you know, rapport is everything, a little, little bit theatrical but uh, and dramatic, but it, it really is. And you know, we should start out today, Stacy, thinking about, from your perspective, what's one of the most common mistakes people make when it comes to establishing rapport, and specifically establishing rapport with people with disabilities? So I think the biggest mistake that we see both in practice when doing peer review and throughout our different training sessions when we have participants is when people try to either abbreviate it or skip it or just not establish rapport with folks at all. There's this you know, bias or assumption that people have that people with disabilities maybe wouldn't be able to answer questions about their everyday life or be able to answer questions that other people they talk to might be able to. Sometimes people get afraid that someone with a disability might have a short attention span and they want to get right to the subject matter of the interview and therefore, you know, sort of either fast forward or skip that part, which we know is not always the best idea. Yeah. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about a forensic interview I did with an adult female with intellectual disabilities. And uh, the agency called me and asked, said, hey, you know, can you do this uh, forensic interview? We know you're in town. Um, they, law enforcement who, you know, traditionally does a great job, uh, particularly this agency that I'd worked with, but, uh, the officer or detective who interviewed her, I, I think pretty much skipped rapport and she was frustrated. So, uh, didn't talk and they were concerned that because she had an intellectual disability, she might not be able to, uh, talk about what happened. So I went in, you know, using, knowing how important rapport building is, and I really spent, you know, a little bit of time building rapport. And midway through, she looks at me and goes, can I tell you what happened? And I said, yes, sure. You know, I said, great. And, uh, and then I was so awesome, Stacy, at not saying anything. I was such a good listener. You'd been so proud. Um, so I like to joke and say, it was like a perfect forensic interview. You can't even peer review it. Well, you couldn't peer review it because I didn't really speak, but it, it was really, you know, remarkable. Uh, what a difference building that rapport where she felt safe and felt comfortable to speak. I know you have some some fun examples. I, I, I sent you near and far at times to do one, and uh, you might be thinking of the one I'm thinking of. You might want to share that experience. Yeah, so uh, I had the opportunity to go and interview somebody with uh, with autism, and it was definitely a unique experience. And you had to go to another country. I too. did. Yeah. I had to fly overseas, and uh, it, was, it was a great interview. We actually set it up for multiple sessions because we knew that with this uh, particular person that getting to know someone, trusting someone, and being able to access those potentially traumatic memories right away was going to be difficult. So one of the things that I also think is important 
is in addition to not rushing it, it doesn't mean that it all has to happen in the same session either. We can spread that process out a little bit when we have the time. And so I spent the whole first session really just getting to know, you know, the person with autism and asking questions and seeing what kind of questions he was comfortable answering. And he got comfortable with me at the same time. So that's the great thing about rapport. I think that we forget sometimes as interviewers is it's it's a two-way street. So in addition to, you know, us assessing the types of questions that someone's going to answer, it's an opportunity for them to get to know us and for them to really be able to tell whether or not we're there and we're genuine and there for genuine reasons and really, um, you know, invested in what they have to say. So I think that some of those examples that we give about investing our time during that process of rapport is what makes it so essential to people feeling valued and then feeling comfortable to be able to tell us sometimes the biggest secret they've ever kept. So I think it's a big deal. So Scott, uh, kind of like that, I know that we have to be creative sometimes when we're establishing rapport with people because it can look different for everybody. So can you think of a time that you established rapport with somebody in a way that was unconventional? <laughs> yeah, I can think of I can think of quite a few actually, uh, both in country and out of country. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just tell a couple short ones. Um, one time I remember, and I, I had the opportunity to do this. You, we, you don't always have time to do this, but this was a unique case. And I had time to, it was a younger individual with uh, autism and intellectual disability as well. And I was able to pretty much spend the day with him. I uh, went to uh, his school. I jumped on the trampoline with him. Uh, I played puzzles with him. I played with matchbox cars. Uh, so that was ki- kind of different. Um, but again, the, but I would say in a sort of interview room in the traditional sense, I remember uh, one young man who he could not stop looking at the, this was back when, uh, you know, some of the forensic interview rooms have been uh, much more, are much more sophisticated now, but there was a red light on the camera and he could not stop looking at the red light. So we wound up getting some electrical tape, black electrical tape and covering it. Uh, it worked <laughs> uh, pretty well. He still knew that the light was there, but um, you know, I remember that. That stood out to me a little bit. I mean, maybe you might have more exciting stories. Uh, I know, I know, you do actually a couple ones. But I, oh, I thought of one. I had an individual that uh, walked backwards into the room. He would walk into any room backwards, and uh, if you got up in the room. To leave, you know, sometimes in, depending on whether you have an earpiece in or not, w- w- where I was, we didn't have an earpiece, so I had to get up. But he would get very upset and physically aggressive if I didn't leave the room backwards. So there's that too. Not trying to scare anybody listening to this, but, uh, you know, these are the things that, that come with it. And, uh, you know, populations of these vulnerable people that we're talking about, folks with uh, mental health diagnoses, older adults, people with disabilities um, absolutely deserve a forensic interview when there's an allegation of uh, abuse, uh, allegation of a crime, and such. And I think we've come a really long way because there. I remember when I first learned about forensic interviewing, it really was one person with a person they were interviewing, so one interviewer and one interviewee in this really sort of like plain room. There wasn't any distractions allowed or we weren't allowed to bring any sort of you know fidgets or coloring or anything in the room could potentially be seen as a distraction or everyone was worried 
that if we had things in the room that would help us establish rapport, that that would somehow be leading and suggestive. So there was this sort of cold, um, almost clinical or acute sort of feeling to what a forensic interview room looked like. So I love that also the field is really evolving with understanding that those are accommodations for people, that we need to meet people where they're at, whatever that looks like. So sometimes it means that we walk in and out of rooms backwards or we um, cover red lights in rooms because people may have sensory processing disorder or different things that they're trying to work out so they can really um, you know, be there in the room in the best way that they can so that we can be asking them questions. So I love that the field has really evolved. And I'm thinking about a couple of cases as you're talking where I was establishing rapport with, um, with, this, with this child with autism who just couldn't sit still. Sitting still was not his thing. And the traditional interview room is sit down in a chair, maybe a table's in there, something like that. And with this child, there was just no chance he was going to sit still. And I didn't ask him to. As long as he's not hurting himself or hurting me, it's totally fine. And there was like a a blue like stress ball in the room, one of those really spongy ones. And he sat on one side of the room and I sat on the other. And he and I just tossed that ball back and forth the whole time. And it was just an opportunity for him to be able to focus on something other than the story that he was telling me or other than the words he was saying and it was a great way for him to you know be comfortable in the room and we were totally accommodating we pushed all the furniture to the side and he and I just sat there and tossed the ball back and forth so sometimes little things like that that maybe seem simple um, or I don't know super creative depending on your perspective can make a difference in one of those conversations with somebody absolutely you know uh, one of the things that also is important about rapport it's it's in addition to the forensic interviewer the whole MDT team can benefit from uh, rapport. Talk a little bit about that. So I think that there's a couple layers to this. So what I've found sometimes from multidisciplinary team members is a lack of understanding of why rapport is so important during the interview because they might see it as, you know, not getting to the point, right? It's the, okay, so what, what what's the disclosure though? What happened? So I think that it's important for all of us, certainly for getting that baseline information to see what, you know, a person is talking about, or maybe it'll give us a little insight to their home life or who they are as a person. And so I think that benefits the interviewer in the moment, but then the whole MDT could also use that information later on, potentially as corroboration, or uh, if they might need to interact with the, the victim later on, which often happens in investigations. So the investigator, prosecutor, advocate, different people on the team are going to need to interact with that person. So if they've seen that, you know, established rapport or know a little bit more about that person, of course, it's going to help them, you know, in connecting with and moving that process along. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. Um, You know, it's, it's funny as, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about a question that I get a lot uh, that we can get a lot sometimes in trainings where people go, well, how long should rapport last? So I would just, my, the answer is simple. It's four. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's four. Four what? So, uh, you know, clearly it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend. It's going to vary uh, significantly on a number of different factors. Yeah, absolutely. It, it depends on the person and the time of day and how they're doing and everything all at the same time and accommodations we might need to make in the moment or we can plan for. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, we've had experiences where you think, God, this, this victim's going to need probably a lot longer because maybe they're a poly victim and there's some complexity to the case. And then all of a sudden, like, rapport goes really well. And then a case where you think, you know, this is just going to be the usual typical, you know, rapport building that I'll do. And then all of a sudden you're like, 
oh my goodness, this is this is a lot harder. Uh, so sometimes it's it's hard to predict. You do the best you can when you plan in advance, and that's why I think some of what we're talking about here is really ultimately rapport building doesn't have to be done in a single interview. Um, there's different ways to do it. You've, you've already spoken about a few of them. One of the things I like that you talk about is, and I've heard you say this in trainings, and I'd like you to share, how do you know when you've built rapport? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite things to quote, and I cannot take credit for it. It's uh, from Dr. Mark Everson out of UNC Chapel Hill, who uh, assisted us, and he was on the writing team for our curriculum. And he says that you don't have rapport with somebody until you, as the interviewer, find something endearing about the person sitting in front of you. And I think when we make that switch as interviewers, it just makes such a significant difference in our approach. Because so often when we think about rapport, we think about getting the person to like us. And if we're trying to get them to like us in that room, we've turned the attention to ourselves. We've made the interview about us. And that's just not what it's about. So if we take the time to find something endearing about that person, it's going to show that genuine interest. We're going to ask those more open-ended questions because that's what we're going to be tending toward because we're genuinely interested in what their responses are. So finding something endearing about them. Um, And the other thing I love about that instruction and that mindset is that sometimes the people that we're interviewing are uh, not all that lovable. Sometimes they (laughs) give us a hard time or (laughs) they, uh, you know, they may- Make you walk out of the room backwards. (laughs) Right, right. Or they may seem, you know, angry or agitated, but those are the people that need that time invested even more. And as interviewers, those are the folks we tend to want to skip it with because we want to sort of get through it. But if we can slow down, invest that time, find something endearing about them, uh, it really makes a difference, sets the tone for the whole interview and can make us more successful through the whole process. Absolutely. Well, I think that's going to cover it for uh, today's episode. You know, probably we could do another one when we talk about how do you build rapport with somebody who doesn't speak? Well, we have a whole curriculum for that too, don't we, Scott? We do, we do. But we could t- we could kind of uh, talk a little bit about, you know, what does that look like when you have to build rapport with somebody who doesn't speak? So I hope you enjoyed uh, today's podcast. But I do have a, a question uh, for Stacy, and I'm going to try to end the podcast these way, this way. Um, people know that uh, I like to tell dad jokes. So Stacy, what do you call a dog? That can do magic. A labracadabrador. <laughs> See, I didn't even let you answer. I, no, to... I was going to say I don't know. So it's <laughs> totally fine that uh, you gave that answer to us. Thanks for that terrible uh, joke, Scott. I hope you like it.